You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. You guys are super kind. Thank you. Again, my name is Greg Gibson. It is great to be back here at Foothills Church. My wife and two kids moved to D.C. to plant um, this past summer. And so it is incredible to be sent from this church, to be back here and have the honor to preach God's word to you. This morning, we're in a series called For the City. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. And let's pray. We're going to get rolling because we have a lot to work through, 20 verses. Let's hope y'all are ready. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Okay, all right. Let's pray. We'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for your great word to us, how you, it just illuminates who you are, your character, your goodness, your, your plan for your people, your church, and this world. God, we submit to you this morning. We place ourselves under the authority of your word, and we ask that you let it encourage our hearts as we seek to love you and love each other and love this world to the best that we can. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2 says this, In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should, should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so then I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, <clears throat> that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to, to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the, prince beyond, or the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to, to Asaph, the, king of the, uh, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city and the house that I shall occupy and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There is no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and then I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, for there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and then returned. 
And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God that has been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arabs heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Friends, let me begin by asking you a question this morning. Have you ever had a burden for something so strong in your heart, so big that nothing, and I mean nothing, is going to hold you back from that burden? Remember when God first began to plant the, the seed in, in my heart and my wife Grace's heart for Washington, D.C., and it grew so fast uh, that, that I began to lose sleep at, at night. I would walk around my living room just, just just pacing because I couldn't stop thinking about what God potentially might be doing in our family, in our life at the time. Grace and I would put the kids down and we'd sing night-night songs because that's what we do in the Gibson home. We'd read a, a bedtime story, pray. Then we'd go watch probably like a 22-minute Netflix show and 9.30 would come and my wife would be asleep because anytime past 9.30, it's a severe form of narcolepsy. And um, it's true, isn't it? So true. So we'd put the kids down wherever 9.30 happened, kitchen table, couch, walking, Grace was asleep. And then I immediately felt the weight of praying through this decision. And she did too at the time, of course. Like so much so that I couldn't sit still, I, could, I couldn't be still, I couldn't rest, I couldn't sleep at all. And, and through the process of praying about moving our family from Maryville, Tennessee, the booming metropolis that it is, to Washington, D.C., from a church we love to playing a church that doesn't exist yet except for in my mind, to take a, a country boy from East Tennessee and put him with six and a half million people from all over the world in a global city. I couldn't sit still and I couldn't sleep at all. And, and through the process of praying about moving our family from Maryville, Tennessee to, to Washington, D.C., I learned a, a pretty important principle about vision. And I think it interweaves and intersects with what we are reading about Nehemiah in chapter one and chapter two of this book and, and following, which happens to be our big idea this morning. And I learned that vision doesn't just get you there, but it also keeps you there. In other words, all I could think about was this vision that God had given to us for planting a gospel-centered and Bible-believing church in our nation's capital. I sat around for, for the last two years 
probably be like many of you complaining about the state of our culture or our nation or whatever, and I got sick and tired of, of hearing how, how bad it was and, and talking about how, how bad our culture was, and so that we decided that we would go give our lives to do something about that, and now by no means are we saints because of this or better than anyone else because of this, but vision doesn't just get you there. It literally, friends, keeps you there. And by keeps you there, I mean literally keeps you there. Mentally, emotionally, prayerfully, even physically, spiritually, I couldn't get away from it. Burden strong enough that even though we were praying about moving to Washington, D.C. to plant a church, the vision for planting a church literally kept my mind's attention and heart's affection and our family's prayer life there at the time. Vision doesn't just get you there. It physically keeps you there. And then when I began to dream about it in my sleep, I knew something was up, that I couldn't just suppress it any longer. I couldn't just tuck it away. And I, I think we see Nehemiah go through a similar feeling of angst and his passion and burden for Jerusalem. Last week, we, we learned and we heard that the walls had fallen and Nehemiah was burdened for a city that he loved. So much so that he wept and, and prayed and fasted for this city. I'm sure losing sleep and, and praying that God would restore Jerusalem, a great city. The first, the first point that I want to make this morning from our text, about vision, Vision doesn't just get you there, it keeps you there. About vision is this. This vision requires planning. It requires strategic planning. From the time of Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, until chapter two, verse one, four or five months have had passed, the month of, of Chisla to the, to the month of Nisan, four or five months of weeping and praying and thinking about what could potentially be. And why was Nehemiah said, we just briefly mentioned it, he was burdened because of the shape Jerusalem was in. Chapter one, verse four says, as soon as I heard these words, that the wall in Jerusalem fell, and Jerusalem was, was being burned up by fire, he says, Nehemiah, in verse four of chapter one, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and fasted and prayed. Nehemiah prayed that God would indeed restore Israel and that he would be true to the promises he made to Moses and those who had gone before Moses. And it just so happens, verse 11, that he was also the cupbearer to the king, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And so Nehemiah was broken, which began his vision and kept him in his vision of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Vision doesn't just get you there. It literally, brothers and sisters, keeps you there. And it kept Nehemiah there. It didn't happen overnight. But four months later, Nehemiah had an opportunity to talk to the king about what burdened him. And remember, he was a cupbearer to the king, so if anybody would have that opportunity in God's good, sovereign plan and world that he creates, Nehemiah would have that opportunity. 
You see, the, the vision or the difference between a dream and a vision is merely just strategy. If you don't have strategy for accomplishing your vision, then it just really is a fantasy in your life. You'll be, you'll be saying yourself or your family, one of these days, I'm going to do this, or one of these days, I'm going to do that forever. And when you begin to put a plan to a dream, then you begin to have a vision and a strategy for that vision. And Nehemiah needed time to plan his vision before he had the opportunity, chapter two, verse two, verse two when the king spoke to him to unfold his plan. Think about it with me for a minute. If Nehemiah had the opportunity to, to talk to the king the first day the walls had fell, he probably wouldn't have had a plan. He probably would have been operating out of intense and fierce emotion. But four months passed, motions died down. Nehemiah was to, able to, to pray and fast and think, come up with a plan. And so the, the king asked Nehemiah why he was sad in, in verse two. Nehemiah shared with him that his homeland was in ruins. And the king asked, okay, what are you requesting? Basically, what do you need from me, bro? I like to imagine Old Testament kings use bro talk to their servants. And then Nehemiah was like, well, since you're asking, here's what I need, bro. His request, a letter of permission, basically his passport because the cities he needed to travel through to get to Jerusalem, he needed documentation. He had to go through uh, the forest that was, that was kept by uh, Asaph, and so he needed a, a access to the king's forest and a, and a letter that required Nehemiah to pass through that. And then in verse eight, what happened? The king granted him what he requested. So when God began to put a burden on my heart and Grace's heart to not just talk bad about culture, but to actually go and do something about it, I didn't share that immediately with anyone. Or we didn't. We began to pray, and I obviously paced around my house a ton. I emailed a guy who was church planting in Washington, D.C. that I knew. And I'll never forget this email that, that I sent to him and he sent back. I just shared with him my heart for church planting in Washington, D.C., and he emailed me back the next day that said, awesome, prove it. That's all it said. And so I was like, challenge accepted. And so I flew up there. I spent the day with him. I talked church planting, our nation's capital, for what it means for an East Tennessee boy to move his wife and two young kids to, to hopefully, potentially, by God's grace and his mercy, plant a church in our nation's capital. And so after that flight up there, I spent four months I kid you not, not because Nehemiah did, it just happened that way. I spent four months praying about this before I even had my first conversation with our elders here at Foothills. And when I, when I finally did, I shared vision for what God was doing in our hearts, coupled with strategy for how I thought that vision could come, become a reality. And after our team had time to process it for a while, they were like, all right, we're in. What do you need from us? And so the second point I want to make about vision from Nehemiah chapter two is this, is that vision requires relentless courage. It requires relentless courage. Verse two, Nehemiah needed courage to speak to the king in verse two. If, if you spoke to a king in the wrong way, or even looked at the king in the wrong way, you might die. 
In fact, it was against Persian law to be sad in the presence of the king. That's when, when the king asked him, why is your face sad? Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid at that moment. But the king asked him why he was sad. So, so Nehemiah, instead of being silenced or saying, oh no, this could go bad for me, was courageous and spoke up. Sometimes just speaking up takes courage, doesn't it? Sometimes doing the right thing takes courage, doesn't it? But Nehemiah didn't need courage to complete the task of rebuilding the walls. He needed relentless courage. And I'm not going to give up no matter what type courage. And so after Nehemiah strategically planned what he needed and had the opportunity to share with the king what he needed, and the king granted him what he needed, then he, he took off to inspect the walls. And in verse 9 and 10, he, he comes in contact. Nehemiah faces opposition when Sanballat and Tobiah were displeased that he was there. And, and we all have Sanballats and Tobias in our lives. Sanballat and Tobiah are, are, are what I like to call idea crushers or dream killers. They're, they're the negative people in our lives that when we share something to or share something about or do anything, it's just constant negativity. You, you know those people, right? You share an idea or a dream, they laugh or are negative about it. Those types of people, in my humble yet sometimes inaccurate opinion, should probably all gather on an island in paradise somewhere. But the ironic thing about if they're on an island in paradise somewhere is that they won't even focus on paradise. They're just complaining about how hot it is. So, so they're just negative and complain all the time. Oh, the sand blots and Tobias of our lives, right? But that ne negativity doesn't stop Nehemiah, does it? How many of us would have just given up right then? Here comes good old Sambalot and Tobiah poking holes at our vision. And just a little confession time to you. Do you know how many Sambalots and Tobias were in my life when I began to share about the vision for church planting in Washington, D.C.? We heard all the jokes. We heard all the jokes about going to save the president. Or, oh, man, they need it up there, yada, yada, you know, and more. But I'm serious. There were times, and there are times still, when I'm discouraged by my own brothers and sisters in Christ about the vision for church planting in our nation's capital. But has that ever happened to you? Friends, vision requires relentless courage, and that is my greatest prayer every day when, when I kiss my wife and, and, and kiss my kids and leave our house, I mean, tiny little apartment and walk out into this massive city with six and a half million people, 92% of them who do not know Jesus. One out of 10 of them even attend some type of church to somehow plant a church in this city out of nowhere. So I understand what Nehemiah is feeling here Attacks on all sides, attacks on the world, and sometimes even attacks from those in his own tribe and on his own team. 
And so the third point I want to make about vision is this, is that vision requires crystal clear communication. Crystal clear communication, verses 11 and 18. I think think we begin to, to see this. Nehemiah goes out, he surveys the land. He's doing reconnaissance on the wall. He was there for three days. He took multiple, uh, or he, he took no one with him. He told no one that he was going. He arose in the night. He took no animals with the one he was riding on. No one, he, 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 no, he didn't take anybody at this point to share in this. And when he was ready to speak, he spoke with clarity and conviction, and courage, and passion. Verse 17, what does Nehemiah say? Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer. A vision is always an answer to a problem. And everyone knew the problem in Israel. And they they felt the problem every day. You didn't have to convince the people of Israel that there was a problem. They knew the walls had fallen down. And they had been broken and the gates of the city had been burnt up. They They were humiliated as a nation. Unless something changed, it didn't really look like Israel as a nation had any real future. And the problem was that they weren't not just understanding it, but they weren't doing anything about it. And so, so just think about your house for a second. If you have a, a massive crack in your wall and someone comes over and you know it's there and you, you have plans to fix it, but you have someone over for dinner and they're like, hey, you got a massive crack in your wall. And you're like, yeah, I know, I've got plans to fix that one day. Um, and then they leave and you might get to work fixing that crack immediately. Why? Because you knew it was there. You just needed fresh eyes for someone to to wake you up from the slumber that it really needed to be fixed. You see, casting vision has this element of waking people up from their slumber. Hey, you, over there, don't you see what's happening? The wall has been broken. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Come let us rebuild this wall together. Or at Foothills Church, running out of space, right? There's nowhere to park. Our kids are climbing all over each other. We need space for our children. We want to build a building for our city, for our children, and for our children's children's children. Or church planting. Our country is headed one direction. Our culture looks like it's in ruins. Can't you see it? Come, let us plant Bible-believing, gospel-centered, mission-focused, people-loving churches in our nation's capital where culture is created. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and what did the people say? I love this. They said, let us rise up and build. So after Nehemiah casted vision, what did the people do? They came together 
And they said, yes, yes, we're behind you. Let's build, rebuild the wall. Yes, let's, let's build a, a new building for our city. Yes, let's plant churches in our nation's capital. And then they strengthened their hands for good work. In other words, I like to think they went beast mode together. And this wasn't new information, but Nehemiah was, was shaking them up. He was causing a stirring. The problem for Nehemiah was, was rebuilding the walls, and he was shaking the people from their spiritual slumber. Vision doesn't just get you there. It literally keeps you there. In the case of Nehemiah, he could do nothing else but say, Israel, look at the problem. Look at the problem. We can fix it. We don't have to sit around and complain about it and type about it on social media. We can fix it. If we come together, and then, and then what happened? They said, let's rise in. But I think there are thousands of people in this area Thousands of people in this city with a spiritual slumber. I think there are some people in this church today, potentially, who are here listening to me in a spiritual slumber. Like you're here, but you're not really here type stuff. And so the solution to the problem for Nehemiah was to rebuild the walls right then. The elders at this church believe the solution to the, the spiritual slumber of our city right now is to build this church right now. And the solution to the stagnancy and problems of our country is not a president who will fix anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, vision doesn't just get you there, it keeps you there. And as we get to work strengthening our hands, let's remember this, that vision requires planning, it requires relentless courage, and it requires what the plan is, communication. And then the fourth thing is this, Vision requires unwavering steadfastness. Verses 19 and 20. And just, just when you've developed your strategic plan and developed a posture of courage and casted passionate vision and there are people behind you, they're strengthening their hands for work, they're ready to get to work, here comes those Sambalots and Tobias again. Gotta love those guys. And the, the negative complainers here now have gathered a third negative complaint. They always seem to find each other. It always seems like the sandblots of the world always run in the same pack. Geshem, the Arab, joins them. They complain some more. They poke holes in Nehemiah's vision. They laugh a little bit. They jeer at them. And the text says despised them. And so what did Nehemiah do? He, he didn't just... He didn't just tuck his tail between his legs and run away. He didn't just say, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, all your names are the worst. He didn't just say, like, we need to go back home right now. No, right? He leaned into criticism. He embraced it. It fueled him. And he used that moment to point, again, the nation of Israel to the God of heaven. He says, the God of heaven will make us 
prosper. And I, lo- I love that. You can laugh all day. You can think this is a terrible idea. You can follow us around being negative. Or you can get on board because this is God's plan and he is going to make us prosper. And, and for the New Testament Christians, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, this word prosper doesn't mean the worldly definition of prosper. We aren't following Jesus because we get more stuff from Jesus. We are following Jesus because we get Jesus. And in that, we get to live as Jesus created us to live for his glory and outflow on mission with the rest of our lives, whether it's in this city, another city, or in another country. And you see, Nehemiah led his people to build a wall. Jesus leads his people to build a kingdom. Nehemiah's walls are made of brick and mortar. The walls of the kingdom are seared and sealed with the death of Christ and built up by those who believe in his resurrection. Nehemiah asked the people to join him to rebuild the walls. Jesus asked you to join him on mission for the rest of your life. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah whose walls never fall down. And you have an opportunity to get on board with that vision today. That's what we mean by prosper at this church. Unlike the people of Nehemiah's day, we don't have to strengthen our hands for work because Jesus has already given his life for any type of salvation that we think that we can work towards. And if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin and you belong to his army, then he, Jesus, changes everything. And so whether we are for this city or for that city or for another global city, or we're about building a building for our city or planting churches in the nation's capital, ultimately vision doesn't just get you there, it keeps you there. Where is God pressing on the doors of your heart today? The thing that you've said, maybe one day I'll do this, or maybe one day I get to, to do this. But if it's a vision given to you by God, it literally keeps you there. Keeps you there. You pace around the house. You lose sleep. You dream about it. You look at the world and there's a problem to be solved, or you look and you see an oppression that breaks your heart, or you look at our country and you say, man, the only thing that can, can fix the unrest is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to give my life to that work. And so throughout history, men and women have, have given their lives for God-sized vision, whether through the book of Acts, we see the apostles give their lives for the gospel. Throughout church history, we've seen men and women get their lives for the gospel. The last couple hundred years, we've seen the, the birth of the modern missionary movement. Maybe you've heard of names like Jim Elliott or William Carey or Adoniram Judson, but I bet you've never heard of a missionary named William Bowden. William Bowden was born in the late 1800s to an extremely, extremely wealthy family in the Chicago area. For his high school graduation, his parents bought him a trip around the world. Like, that's a sweet graduation present in the late 1800s. That's a sweet graduation present in 2016. 
during his traveling time around the world, Bowdoin was, was burdened of the need that he saw when he went from country to country to country to country, seeing the needs that were around the world. And this 16-year-old wrote home to his friends and family of his desire to, to potentially one day be a missionary. And it freaked his parents out, it freaked his friends out, and they began to plead with him, do not do this. In 1905, Bowdoin went to Yale, so he was, he was wealthy and he was smart, and he could have done anything and ran any company or potentially led any country, who knows. He went to Yale. During his college years, he made an entry in one of his journals that became to define his life, which said, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. And by the, the time Bowdoin was a senior at Yale, over 1,300 Yale students were coming to his campus Bible study. He graduated from Yale. He still knew he was gonna go to the foreign mission field. And so he enrolled in Princeton. And by, by the time he graduated from Princeton with a degree in, in, in global trade and Chinese, because he wanted to, to take the gospel to the Kansu Muslims of, of China, he was already a millionaire and he planned to set forth for the mission field. And, and missions is much different than missions now. Like we get a nice comfortable airplane trip, but it's more of like a cultural experience for us. Trip for a week, then we get to jump back on the cozy airplane and come home. You get on the ship, man. You're getting on the boat. And more often than not, you're packing your things in a coffin because you might not come home and you're literally giving your lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so after graduating Yale and then Princeton with a master's degree, Bowden, a 25-year-old millionaire who had 1,300 people at his Bible study, he could have probably led a mega church in the South somewhere. He gets on a boat, sailed off to work with the Muslim Khonsu people of China. His parents thought he was crazy. His friends thought he was crazy. They pleaded with him not to go. And sometimes even the closest people in our lives can be Sanballat's and Tobias. But they thought he was crazy. Like even to the point where the boat was sailing off, they were still pleading with him and yelling for him to come back. But he went and his first stop was in Egypt. And while he was there for one month, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within one month of sailing off, the 25-year-old millionaire, William Bowden, died. That's why we don't get to hear his awesome stories about how he took the gospel here, took the gospel there, and all these people came to know Christ. He never made it. When he died, they sent back his Bible to his parents. They didn't even send back his body. He sent back his Bible. And when he was dying, he wrote three phrases in the front of his Bible. Which were these words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Friends, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. 
and we, his servants, will arise and build. That is what we are doing here at Foothills Church. That is what we are hoping to do in Washington, D.C. With, with church planting. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Arise and build. So it is an honor for me to preach God's word to you this morning. I love this church. Be in prayer for Grace and I and Cora and Ivor, our kiddos, as we seek to plant a church in our nation's capital and as we partner together to see that happen for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your gospel that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die in our stead and die in our place. And there's nothing that we deserve to receive your free grace and your free mercy that you've given to us in the death and resurrection and substitution of your son. Help us be a people that focuses on that and then lives out of that. God, I I pray for the, the, the people in this room who you are knocking on hearts, knocking on their hearts about a God-sized vision that you might be giving them or how they can be a part of what you're doing here, be a part of what we're doing in Washington, D.C. God, help us understand that what you have given to us, you've also provided a way for it to happen. God, I, I pray that as we think about vision, that we would understand the the strategy for it and and be courageous in it. We would communicate it clearly and then we would be steadfast in it. That we wouldn't waver. No retreats, no reserves, no regrets. And I pray that you would give men and women in this church the passion to go, to, to leave behind the comfort zones of of family and babysitting and take their young kids and go or, or, or to leave behind the comfort zones of, of, of teenage years and, and go or for, for empty nesters to, to leave behind as hard as it may be. Children and grandchildren and go for the sake of your fame in this world. God, oh, that we would be a people that does not give lip service to the Great Commission, but we would be a people who gives our lives for the Great Commission. We surrender to you. With open hands, we live. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.